Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello, and thank you for joining on for this online resource. My name is Bissia Bamerton and I'm a theology PhD student at the University of Exeter. Today we are joined by an amazing New Testament scholar and author of many books, including her newest book, Creating Compassionate Campuses, Professor Louise Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. I know you're really, really busy. You. Thanks for inviting um, me. <laughs> so yeah, please tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and what your research passions are. Yeah, so my name is Louise Lawrence, as you as you said, I'm Professor of New Testament Interpretation here in Exeter. Um, uh, my research interests, I, I, I work in New Testament studies, um, so uh, particularly sort of cross-cultural anthropology um, with biblical texts. Um, but latterly, for the last sort of decade, I've been really interested in the ways in which religion and sacred texts sort of censor bodies and minds and particularly around um, disability um, studies so yeah so that's that's my interest for the, for the people <laughs> that are watching um that maybe if they're just starting a phd or whatever they're doing um right at the beginning of their career they're not socialized into any institution what would you say to them what would you implore to them um, with regards to pedagogy and decolonization and that kind of thing I think, I mean, well, you're a brilliant example of this, and you should probably say a bit about how you're unpicking, um, unpicking New Testament studies. But, you know, I'll, I'll let you talk because you've got more important things to say on this. I, I think that you must be true to yourself, you know, in a, and in a sense, if it matters to you, it matters. Mm. And if you identify injustice, even if other people haven't seemed to be able to have recognised or have um, sort of been made conscious of that, then call it out. And I think mm. that, and I think as an early career academic, you can, there's a very well-known thing called imposter syndrome. I shouldn't be here. I don't look like I should be here. I don't sound like I should be here. I'm not clever enough. Everyone goes through those things. Everyone mm. feels those things. It, it, it's a very natural part of it. And, and that says probably more about the inhospitality of mm. academia or the perceived sort of sense of academia than it does about you. And you just have to have the confidence to have that voice. Or you say about your your ways in which you're sort of challenging the Eurocentricism of biblical studies. Yeah. And so. finding a voice that's been lost or not even recognised. It's that 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 null curriculum that you've kind of picked up yeah I guess it's just kind of coming into the field and not seeing myself and not really knowing where I fit and thinking obviously recognizing that I was born in the UK and that I do have a western education um but not really fully feeling like I fit into that box and then you know thinking oh yeah I'm African that's what, that's what I am and then not fully fit mm. in that box either um, so yeah, I think bringing a kind of Nigerian British kind of hybrid uh, viewpoint has been interesting because it has highlighted things that I don't think anyone has really thought about. Mm. Um, things that I've experienced and I've walked in my life um, that are just so normal to me that I guess it's kind of almost a bit 
at first it was a bit kind of weird you think that it's new like why is that new to you <laughs> like, do, you not, mm. do you not do you not know that <laughs> like, yeah actually um yeah it's quite a unique experience and I think it's been quite quite privileged of bringing that to theology and introducing new ways of knowing and new new lenses of knowledge yeah definitely um, so similar yeah I mean absolutely so your sort of Afro-Pian perspective has, 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 has brought out so much of the text and of and so so much that that of assumptions that have just been accepted as as given mm. within interpretation and actually you know should they be mm. I had a similar kind of um transformative moment working with the British deaf community um because they in a sense very much um made me unlearn things I mean being an academic you're very bookish I and I'm and my working on New Testament interpretation I you know everything's about text mm. and suddenly to be in a context where and I should say you know deaf community with a capital D is a cultural group that yeah that see themselves very much as a politicized you know deaf is not deficit deaf yes is, deaf is like an ethnic kind of identity <laughs> marker with traditions that you know and and most crucially with their own language that yeah. happens not to be written or mm -hmm. or heard um and so the ways in which they actually modified my understanding of what bible was was really interesting and you know in a sense a gestural performative bible actually for history has probably more of a resonance with with a context where there was large low literacy in the ancient world you know and so mm -hmm. those kinds of assumptions but also the way in which um they picked up on parts of the text which i would never have kind of um or or, or interpreters that were very audio centric would never have, have have picked up on so one example was there's a story in the new testament of jesus healing a uh deaf man without speech and at the end of the story, um, it says, and the man spoke plainly. And in the first sort of um, reactions to this text, one of the um, group pointed out that, that this person could, couldn't have been born deaf and that Jesus wasn't sort of seeing deafness as a bad thing, but needed to be healed or normalized. It was just that this person had, been able to hear and then lost his hearing and I was like well why have you come uh -huh. to that conclusion he said because he speaks plainly so he's he's learned spoken language so they almost like modified that idea that that, that spoken language is better than being deaf and completely sort of wow. changed it and actually healing narratives for for disability who are themselves you know like a colonized group by the hearing world colonized their language you know you must learn this way there are allied experiences I think with the deaf community and and colonization and they very much sort of resisted and, and refigured those those elements and I think yeah and really opened up a whole new sort of avenue for for of understanding of, of these stories and traditions. That is really powerful I think mm. I haven't even thought of it like that before like wow no. Well, most I don't think I I found from like looking at commentaries from the 1800s right through, no one really had picked up that at all. Most commentators just said this is a straight healing story. Obviously, you know, 
it's fulfilling prophecy and prophecy is very able that the, the the deaf will hear the blind will see and and they completely kind of yeah went against that and 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 just shows how norms just become complete status quo mm. and accepted yeah, and yeah. how different viewpoints can completely make you unlearn those yeah wow mm. thanks Louise for your amazing insights and this discussion not um, at all just before we close like what exciting thing are you, are you doing at the moment what are you working on um yeah oh that's a really nice question <laughs> i've been doing a lot of marking of exams at the moment um i'm actually working with colleagues in psychology on a, a big project on student mental health or whole institutional approaches to student well-being and actually, you know, it, it may seem rather unconnected to what we're talking about, but I actually, um, you know, work the, the medical model of, of, of mental illness, I think, you know, has a place. There are, of course, um, students that need that, that, that help, but actually the social and cultural model of, 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 of mental health and well-being, I think, includes a lot about feeling culturally included, about feeling a sense of belonging, about feeling a sense of being represented. And many of the sort of stories that um, we've 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 um, have been shared by students in, in this institution. And, and we've, we're working with six other Russell Group institutions, but very much kind of they are aware of how their curricula, you know, their well-being isn't something you can just individualize actually mm. it's about the whole student experience and that includes what they're studying how they're studying how the how their kind of learning community makes them feel and i think um, that kind of cognitive epistemological justice and feeling that you know like, like you're saying that, that that there is representation that your voice is heard mm. all of these kinds of elements are things that can really enhance a sense of belonging and and a sense of of well-being for students so um yeah so that's what that's kind of the, the big project on on my specific in new testament i'm gonna start looking at um and it's only sort of the very beginnings but i'd like to do a project on age and ageism wow. um, in in new testament text and interpretation um that too i think is very cross-culturally constructed just to give you one anecdote for, before I finish, um, uh, talking about global north-south norms, what's really interesting is that um, I've got a postdoc that's working out in Namibia on a project on religion and um, inclusion in Namibia. And we had to go through all the ethics approval to work with human subjects um, through Exeter. And actually, you know, 18 is kind of the constructed age of um adulthood in our context but in other contexts that that's a very mm. meaningless kind of number and it just shows how even our construction of the person or the thinking person or the person that is able to give consent is a construction and mm. actually you know if we're going to be uh an institution that thinks carefully about how it works with partners in different contexts it 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 needs to take seriously the ways in which different contexts construct um uh construct research and its sort of um yeah voices in different sorts of ways similarly anonymity was a really mm -hmm. big thing in 
in our ethics process in Exeter, whereas our participants in Namibia and our informants were really, really um, keen that their name was put, you know, if I'm saying something, I want my name to be in it. Um, okay. And and we had to fight quite hard that, that those names were appended to the voices that we were given. Um, and naming is has also been used in colonial practices, you know, changing mm. names or enforced change of names. And so, so names, personhood and identity, you know, again, really important. You have to be very sensitive to the ways in which people, you know, are attached to names and, and want names represented. So yeah, so in our publications, we have our informants names, which is very different, I guess, to, um, to many uh, publications that go through ethics approval here. Um, I love it. Guys, watch this space. Watch, check out Professor <laughs> Lawrence's new book, Compassionate uh, Universities. Uh, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. you. You're amazing. Uh, <laughs> I hope you guys watching are inspired. I mean, I've learned so much already in this like this half an hour talk. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that. So see you. Thank Bye. you ever so much. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe. And join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between.